several years ago, I was in my office in the church we were serving in Vancouver, and my secretary, whose name was Sylvia, came in, and she said, there's someone on the phone who wants to talk to you. And I said, okay, who is it? She said, the president. I said, who? She said, he just said, it's the president. I'd like to talk to Pastor Campbell. So I thought, the president? When I answered the phone, I discovered that it was the president of the denomination that I was part of. And uh, it was very surprising to Sylvia to realize that that was how this person would self-identify. And I was thinking about that this week and just wondering, how, how do you think of yourself? How, how do you identify yourself? And then as well as that, how would other people identify you? So here's this person who apparently um, was really owning his role as the president. He was a lay president, but he was president nonetheless. And so he saw himself as the president and wanted to portray himself also as the president. So once I realized who it was, I could talk in a normal voice, not get panicky, wonder why I was being contacted by the president of anything. Uh, and that was just a fun little, little event many years ago. I, I do want to talk today about this whole idea of how we see ourselves and how others see us. So I've now been a pastor for many, many years, and there have been several times people have basically um, seen me as a reverend, seen me as a minister, and, and that kind of shapes how they view me. Or of course, it shapes how they view me. And many times, it's not how I'm viewing myself. So I'm sort of taken aback when I realize that a person is talking to me as a pastor. So very often, I've had someone say something like this. In the middle of sort of a tirade or something, the person would say, sorry, Reverend, excuse my language. And, you know, I always have to say, don't worry about it your language is excused. And I think, oh, I wonder why my being a reverend would make them think that they should change their language. A while ago, not here, but um, in a previous place, um, a person on the way out of church said to me, nice mass, Father. And I looked at her and thought, well, should I just say thank you and let it go by? Or should I point out the fact that I have a wife and children, so if I'm conducting a Mass as the Father, um, something is out of sorts here. How do you view yourself? How do people view you? Are you um, someone's daughter? Are you someone's son? Someone's parent? Um, are you the job that you do? So as, as you think about how it is that you would identify yourself or view yourself and how others would identify you or view you, what comes to mind? Does the mess up that you made of something mark you? Is, is that how people view you when they see you? Is that what, what comes to mind? Or is that what you think maybe comes to mind? Is it your accomplishment? I mean, can you imagine being Chris Hadfield? How can he be anything else than an astronaut, right? So 
that may be how other people view him, and I wonder if that's how he would view himself or, or identify himself. Are you mom or dad or gram or granddad? I had a hard time when Annabeth and I first got married. I had a hard time calling her mom and dad mom and dad because they didn't feel like mom and dad to me. So I would call them Mr. and Mrs. Reynolds, which was pretty awkward. Um, but when we had children, I began to be able to just call them by the role that they have, which is being Graham and Granddad. So until their dying days, I refer to them as Graham and Granddad to their face. How do you identify yourself? How do other people identify you? We spend much of our time worrying about how we're perceived, don't we? Someone said, if, if you worry about what other people think, you should realize how seldom they do think about you, and, and you shouldn't be obsessed about it. But we do obsess about it. We, we worry about how we are viewed. And so I, I want to ask this morning, when you look in the mirror, what is it you say you see? What is the identity of that person in the mirror? Or what would be the identity someone would, would attribute to you as, as they see you? So we're going to talk today just very briefly, really, in the introduction to this series, Walk the Talk, uh, about James. And I'm going to just guide you a little bit in asking the question, how did James see himself? I mean, what was his identity? And then we'll proceed and learn what he has to tell us. So all of this began last week as I gave you this little um, poem of sorts that says your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. The whole point is that living the Christian life is very, very much about the walk, very much about the the way we live, and to a lesser degree, it's about the talk, it's about the things we say. And this is a true little poem when it says that the loudest part of my life is not what I say, but it's what I do. And we're, we're learning, uh, we will learn many things about that from our friend James. Um, backing up to the question, who was he? Uh, how was he viewed by others? And then, and then we'll round to the question, how did he view himself? And Miss Ranza has given us a really thorough lesson on who he was. She said things I didn't know before, so boy, shame on me about that, right? So who was this person? He was, and he was viewed by everyone who knew him, and in retrospect, by all of those um, who now look back on his life, he was the, the leader of the Church of Jerusalem. And in terms of status, if, if we can try to, to you know, ascribe status to him, being the leader of the Jerusalem Church gave him a great deal of clout. So you remember that there was some debate that went on early in the church about how Gentiles had to behave, conform, change, or whatever, to be Christians, along with Jewish Christians. And a council at Jerusalem had, had people who basically presented testimony. And they said, this is what we should require of Gentiles if they want to be part of the church, if they want to join Jewish 
Christians. And the last person to speak was James. In fact, if you read it, it's like he gives the closing argument. He's the one who decides something very pivotal in the whole development of the early church. And so he, he really uh, trumps the other contributors. He, he, he kind of walks past whatever renown, whatever um, sort of authority Peter had, Paul, as we see the unfolding of, of his role in the early church. James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And some scholars have said that he was actually um, a contra-Paul person, that the early Christianity that emerges in the New Testament is maybe either a Jesus Christianity or a Paul Christianity. I, I don't think there's such a distinction. They are one and the same. But in trying to dismantle how it was, um, the Jesus Christianity was, in fact, the Christianity that was led by James. And so, as I said last week, we might even find in the letter of James a little debate that um, is going on between him and Paul related to faith and uh, whether the granting of faith is simply on the grounds of faith itself or whether deeds must also attend faith to be um, rounding out the claim to be a person who is a follower of Christ. What else do we know about James? Well, we know, as Ranza told us, that he was the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he was probably not one of the twelve, so one of the mistakes that's made often is that he's one of the two Jameses in the story of the, the twelve followers of Christ. He did not believe in Jesus. Uh, we are told that um, Jesus' brothers did not believe him. They, they, you know, came looking for him at one point, wanting him to kind of catch himself on and stop pretending to be this leader or being acclaimed as this leader. And Jesus kind of wrote them off as having the, um, the right to pull him back into their fold or back into their family. James the Just, we've already heard about from Ranza. James the Lesser, um, which means probably something about his height more than his status. Um, he was martyred early in the history of the, the Christian church, and we find that that took place about 62 AD. So it was really relatively early in the church history, and he was not a person of great age when he um, was martyred for his, his faith. And he was martyred because he seemed to be at odds with an emerging Orthodox Christianity. The letter of James has four or 40 either quotes, allusions, or references to the teaching of Jesus. So, the book of James is very much like the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Um, it, it's, it's not a, a full doctrinal treatise about anything. It's, it's kind of topical uh, um, comments on the how-tos of living the Christian life, the, the deeds of the Christian life. It's, it's pithy wisdom. And in part, James says, hey, look, if you lack wisdom, ask God. 
And uh, he must have asked God because his, his book is, is just chock full of, of great wisdom that is um, passed on to us on down through the years. Well, coming back to the question of how we see ourselves and how others see us and how important that is, how did James see himself? How did he self-identify? How would he have introduced himself? Uh, I looked through all of the epistles in the New Testament, um, most of which are introduced by um, the actual writer introducing himself. And so I was curious to know, well, how did all of the writers of the New Testament letters identify themselves? How did they view themselves? And I found that there were some very common elements all the way through this sort of string of introductions. Um, We find that Paul um, almost always identified himself as an apostle. That was kind of the primary identifier. And then he would add on to that also the term bond servant. When we come to James, um, we find that he does not choose to use the term apostle. When we get to John, in the second and third letter that John writes, he just calls himself the elder, which is an interesting way um, of his uh, self-identifying and then others also identifying him that way. Jude has a curious introduction. He says that he is a bondservant of Christ Jesus and the brother of James. So he's kind of playing that, you know, you probably don't know me, but my brother is James. So that's impressive um, to whatever degree people are impressed by James. James, Paul, Peter, John, Jude, they all identified themselves as they began their instructions in the letters that they wrote to the, in the New Testament. What strikes me is that James cuts to the chase and simply identifies himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So a- apostle is kind of a lofty term. And it might simply be that James was not viewing himself as one of the original 12 or uh, one of the original apostles. But it also might be that he's, he's not trying to claim anything more for himself than a very simple description that he is a bondservant. So he, he's not calling himself an apostle. He's not you know, even acknowledging the, the John sort of idea that John is the elder because that connotes, you know, some age and some maturity and some responsibility, uh, James simply introduces himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. A bondservant of God and of Jesus Christ is how James would like to have been viewed. Um, And and what's important about that? I wonder if we were to press the matter home, if we could ever claim that the way we view ourselves or that others view us is simply that we're a servant. It's actually the word slave. So there's the context in which that word emerges. And James, for whatever else, you know, he, he might be able to draw on uh, for his, his resume and, or for his introduction, 
He goes to the word for a slave. And we know the New Testament setting and the place that slaves have in the culture and in, in the day of the New Testament. So a slave is someone who has absolutely no rights. Absolutely no rights at all. And when I use the word servant, you know, as a synonym, it's a bit of a stretch because it, it, it really is the word slave that James is saying to his hearers or his, his readers that he wants to be known simply as the slave of Jesus Christ. That, that, that's his claim to fame or that's his claim um, to have any reason to say the things that he does or to be respected for the things that he in, in fact says. When people look at me, how would, how would they describe me? Would they describe me as a pastor, as a father, as someone who does this or someone who has done this? Would I be someone's brother, someone's son? Would someone ever say about me or about you that that is a real servant? Because we don't use the word slave. It's a pretty pejorative term for sure. But we can say that the, the application of that word today would be that when I introduce myself, I would say, I am a servant. Farther than that, James says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I am a servant of God. When we delve back into the story of James and his place among the family of followers of Christ, we would come back to a very interesting part of what um, Jesus said to his, to his disciples, and, and we find it recorded in John chapter 15. And this is kind of interesting, because now, many years later, James, along with the other writers of the New Testament letters, goes back to calling himself something that Jesus says he doesn't call them anymore. So th this time Jesus said, no longer do I call you slaves. That, that's the word. It's the word doulos, slaves, or we would say servant today. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said, look, this is the relationship we have. It is the relationship best called friendship. I don't call you servants. You know, you're, you're not here to serve me. I call you my friends. And, and haven't you noticed that about me and what I'm committed to? That, that I count myself as your friend. I count you as my friends. So then we fast forward and we get to James and we say, when James introduces himself or the other apostles, why don't they say, friend of Jesus? Wouldn't that be an impressive way to identify yourself. Why do they, instead of that, call themselves servants? I, th I think the point of all of that is that they could have called themselves friends. They had every right to call themselves friends. Um, no one would have said, hey, wait a minute, where do you get off calling yourself a friend of Jesus? So, why did they not call themselves friends? Since they were friends, 
they chose to call themselves something else. What does that mean? The, the bottom line is this. When you know you are someone's friend, you have a lot of latitude about how you describe your identity and your relationship with them. So because these writers knew they were Jesus' friend, they were then able to choose the word that they would rather identify them in terms of their attitude in this sort of realm of being the friends of Jesus. When you know who you are, there's a great deal of latitude and freedom in calling yourself whatever you would like to be that makes sense in the context of who you actually are. So I'll bring you back to John 13, where there's this remarkable story um, of how Jesus washed his disciples' feet. But it's even more remarkable about how John introduces this. He says, because Jesus knew he had come from the Father and he was returning to the Father and all authority was given to him, because he knew all of those things, he took the towel and basin and he washed his disciples' feet. When, when we learn the lessons of sonship or daughtership, when we learn and, and grasp who we are in a relationship with God, in a relationship with Christ, then we are set free not to worry about how we view ourselves or even how other people look at us. We really should be willing to say, it doesn't matter what you call me. It doesn't matter what you label me. It doesn't matter how you view me because I'm grappling with, I am grasping, I'm embracing the truth of who I am and whose I am, as we've said several, several weeks ago. When I know that I am Jesus' friend, when I know that God is my Father, when I know that I am related to God, I might choose to use a word that doesn't actually reflect that specific relationship, but it may reflect the heart that I would like to show. It may reflect the deeds that I'd like to make manifest in my life. So James said, who am I? Uh, I could say I'm the brother of Jesus. I could say I'm the friend of Jesus. I, could I am a bondservant. I, I am a servant. We struggle with our identity, don't we? Part of, of the human journey is to discover who we are. Um, many years ago, I think the first time I was traveling in Africa, I noticed at a, at a conference I was speaking at in Nigeria um, that a whole lot of the people sitting in the pews had the bishop's scarlet smock on. They had, or the, the bishop's scarlet um, shirt. And I asked the person that was hosting me, why there were so many bishops in the audience. And he said, they're self-proclaimed bishops. And I thought, wow, why? And, and I realized that there was, there was a ranking that was, was sort of, um, it was made up of a whole lot of self-appointed higher rankers. 
So every movement that you would find in, in the country of Nigeria, for example, you'll find a bishop, a bishop, a bishop, all over the place there's a bishop. He's not a bishop in the sense of being a bishop in the Anglican communion. He's a self-identified bishop. And I don't fault him for that because living in a country where um, you are surrounded by by you know crowds and crowds of people, you would like to have the authority, the opportunity to lead and so on. And as well, just to be careful that I'm not casting aspersions on Nigeria, in the country of Nigeria, there are more Anglican clergy with earned PhDs than in the whole rest of the Anglican communion worldwide. You get that? In that one country, more Anglican clergy have PhDs than the whole rest of the Anglican communion. So, you know, there you go. Nigeria is a, a place full of bright and capable and and um, and functioning leaders. But but it, it it just reminded me of how this is a human journey that we're on, trying to figure out who we are. And the way that we would parse that all out is to say, um, I am, as I think of myself, I am, I would like to think such and such. As people look at me, they would see, or I would like to see, that they see me as. And if we look to the Bible for an example of what it is that we just should aspire to in terms of our identity, then James would step up and say, how about servant? How about we really, really strive to not only be called a servant, but in fact, to be a servant. In fact, to be then recognized as a servant so that people might say, I know there are a whole lot of other things that he does or she does, but the thing that makes the biggest difference about him or her is that he's a servant. She's a servant. And, and she's not a servant because she is made to be. It's, it's not a, you know, a, a pushing down kind of a thing. That person seems to be a very large person in her real identity. She, she seems like she could claim all kinds of things for herself. But I think she views herself primarily as a servant. And certainly that's how other people would relate to her. They would think of him, they would think of her as being a servant. Wouldn't that be great if at the end of this life, someone would mark our gravestone and say, he was a servant. And if we through our lives would say, and the way in which I direct my being a servant is to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every act of service is actually an act of service for him. I serve him. That's who I am.